So you guys know that this is a big weekend uh, for my wife and I, right? I'm, we're not going to bury the lead. Uh, if I just suddenly just leave the room, you know, with Kimmy, I think we'll all, under, all understand why. Uh, and I may just be a little preoccupied at, at the same time as well. So just, you know, bear with me. Uh, but this is a really uh, a huge blessing for us because not only do we get to be here and worship as we look forward to uh, the, the birth of our first tomorrow morning, but we do get to be with you guys, our church family, and even our physical family. My in-laws, my parents, they're here. And so this has just been a huge joy for us. You guys know that I'm from the East Coast, so my family doesn't get to visit quite as often. And so this is just uh, a special joy. So I hope you make them wel welcome. Don't ask them any questions, okay? <laughs> no questions allowed. But as you guys know, I'm from the East Coast where growing up with my family and my parents, we were just minutes away from Gettysburg, Antietam. We, we lived really in the cradle of history. So for me growing up, American history was a big part of our life. It, it was a big part of just the way we were raised. And some of you know that I am just a huge history buff when it comes to the American Revolution, uh, the American Civil War. And I wanted to share an interesting stat with you guys. Uh, it, it's hard for us to pin down because records are, are so poorly kept. But do you guys know that it is predicted, that, that it's estimated, that before the Civil War, before the Emancip Emancipation Proclamation, there were hundreds, maybe even thousands, in some people's estimates, of African-American slaves who were freed from their slavery, who either ran away from slavery or were able to purchase their own uh, freedom, who voluntarily returned to their masters. I want to name you just a, a few of these people. Uh, there, there was one man, he has a name, uh, I believe it's pronounced Kimbe. He was a carpenter in Georgia in the South, and he had saved up enough money to buy his own freedom. I'm reading this from uh, out of a book I own. The problem is, is that five years later, he came back to the plantation from which he had um, escaped or, or purchased his own freedom, and he asked to be bought back again into slavery. That was a real person. Another woman, her name was Percy Ann Martin. She was a free woman who had purchased, again, her own freedom from North Carolina. She actually had to go to court in North Carolina in order to petition to be seen again as a slave under the watch of the government and to be returned to her master. And then there's one unnamed man who actually ran away from slavery in the state of Virginia, but within a year returned uh, in stating with the quote that he preferred to return to slavery than his life of freedom. And we read those stories and we ask ourselves, how could they feel that way? How could they return to this awful thing that they were a part of? Why in the world, after having tasted freedom, after being removed from these shackles, would they want to return to their own slavery? It seems ridiculous to us. But then we also have to ask ourselves, why do we, when we have been saved from the power of sin, when we have been saved from the slavery of sin, do we return to that slavery really often on a daily basis? Why do we return to it, guys? Well, well, why do we, even though we know that we're saved, even though we know that Christ has paid it all, even though we spent a whole Sunday morning talking about the role of the Spirit to equip us, to obey Him, and to know us, why do we again and again return to the slavery of sin? 
And oftentimes when we ask that question, and some of you may be even doing this right now, you may often be thinking of actually other people. Because we know of those situations as well, don't we? Why, why do we have children who constantly turn back into sin? Why, why do we have loved family members or siblings who constantly turn back into sin? Or friends from church or neighbors who constantly go back? But as much as we need to be thinking of those people, we also need to be thinking of ourselves. That we need to recognize, wait a second, when we sin, every time we commit sin, we're doing more than just making a mistake. We are doing the same thing that these individuals were doing. We are doing, uh, we, we are doing this return to the slavery that we were freed from. Why do we do that? I believe that Paul, in today's passage, is going to explain to us exactly why we return to our sin, even though we have freedom in Christ. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, where Paul is going to address this very issue of people who have freedom in the gospel, freedom as a result of accepting the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross, only to return back to old habits Paul is going to talk about that in Galatians. And while you're turning to Galatians, let's actually just use this as a quick opportunity for review. I believe we have an outline slide that we can show. You guys know that the letter to Galatians, it is a letter. It's not just a textbook. It's not just a diatribe or a theological treatise. It is a practical letter, uh, an email, we, we might put it in today's culture, written from a real person, Paul, to a real group of people. Jewish and Gentile Christians living in this region called Galatia, which today is modern-day Turkey. And you know that we've been working week by week over the months through this letter that has a structure to it. He, he, he's forming this letter as an argument. He opens up with this exhortation where he introduces the topics that he's going to discuss. Then he gives some narration. He describes some of the events that have led up to this point. And really, over the past few months, we've been focusing most on the purpose or the thesis, that's the proposition of his letter, that he begins in chapter 3, where he has that famous verse about you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You who began in the spirit, now you return to the flesh. That's the issue that he's going to deal with. And what we're in now, through the rest of chapter 3, through most of chapter 4, is going to be Paul just again and again explaining the point that he's trying to make at the beginning of chapter 3. And remember, the point or the issue that he's dealing with is that we have Christians who have been led to the Lord as a result of Paul in his first missionary journey. We can read about that in the book of Acts. But now they are being deceived. They are being told by Judaizers that in order to grow as a Christian, they have to become Jewish. They have to follow the Mosaic law. So Paul is spending all of chapter 3 and most of chapter 4 trying to prove why that's not the case. And we have been looking at it meticulously, haven't we? But today, in chapter 4, starting in verse 8, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Because Paul has just been hammering the Galatians with theology and, and with theological explanations and, and, and explain to them why uh, the law is good, but why it's not able to accomplish righteousness. He's, he's been dealing through so many deep things, but now in verse 8, he's going to get a lot more personal. So, so it's like we're shifting from almost this kind of classroom, uh, almost a legal type of uh, lawyer trying to give a defense of something, where now Paul is just pausing and he's saying, guys, we need to talk. We need to talk about this situation. 
And the situation that Paul wants to talk about, again, is that situation that happens at the beginning of chapter 3. Why are you guys returning to slavery? Why are you guys returning to this thing that you have been freed from? Why are you guys doing it? And what he's going to have to say in verses 8 through, uh, 8 through 11 is going to give us an answer, hopefully, for us today of why we return to slavery and how we can prevent doing so. He says in verse 8, he says, Formerly, back then, when you did not know God, he says that you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. I think that's a verse that most of us can agree with. I don't think that I have to do a lot of explanation of that. We know that a life before the gospel, a life before Christianity, is a life of slavery. Have you ever seen someone who is just totally wrapped up in sin and just feel bad for them? When I drive home from school, uh, often on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I have to drive through downtown Spokane, and you, and you just see those people on the side of the street. You see those people on the corner, and, and they think that they're living a free life. They're thinking, hey, I get to sleep in. I don't have a job. I, I get to do what I want, wherever I want. Those people are in slavery. They're in slavery to substances, often uh, sometimes mental issues that come as a result of using those substances. Those people are completely in bondage. And we understand that. And he says, formerly, you guys were also a part of this. But that's not really where the rub comes in verse 8. Because we would all agree with verse 8. The rub comes really in verse 9. He says, but now, this is the problem, you were formerly enslaved to these things that are not God's, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It's almost like Numbers chapter 14. You can write that down if you want to read it sometime this week. Remember Numbers 14, the Israelites, they had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They're now in the wilderness, and what do they say? Oh, we don't like this manna. Oh, it's hot out here. Oh, it, this is hard. Oh, do you remember those onions in Egypt? Do you remember those melons in Egypt? Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. It's the same thing that's happening. He says, you guys were once to en enslaved to, to, to these things that are not God, but now that you know God and that God knows you, how are you turning back to them? The point that we have to notice in this verse, really one of the key phrases, is Notice what he describes. Look, look at the label that he uses for the thing that he says that Christians are turning back to. He doesn't say you're turning back to sin, necessarily. He, he doesn't say that you're turning back to any particular form of wrongdoing. Look at the label that he uses at the end of verse 9. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless? Look at that next phrase. Elementary principles of the world. Do you guys recognize that phrase? He's already used that phrase earlier in chapter 4. Look at verse 3 in chapter 4. He just used this. He says in the same way in verse 3, when we were children, we were enslaved to what? We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Do you guys remember how we defined that? Maybe you don't, that's okay. But we'll review, it's all right. When Paul's talking about the elementary principles of the world, 
what he's talking about is, is the basic elements of creation. The elementary principles of the world in that context, we believe, was referring to um, the, the, the four elements, wind, fire, water, the, 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 these basic things of nature, and, and the idea that we are born into creation. We are born into this fallen world, and we're a slave just to our flesh. We're, we're, we're a slave to this natural world. You guys recognize that we live in a fallen world, right? That, that because of sin in the garden, this world is now cursed, the flesh, the elementary, elementary principles of the world. It started out good in the garden, but now it's stained with sin. And everything in our nature and everything in nature itself is always guiding us and pointing us towards sinfulness. Which is why it was so important in Galatians 4 verse 4 that Paul made it clear that Jesus, when he was born, he just wasn't born under the law. He was also born under a woman. That, that, that he was someone who uh, had come in order to free us, not just from the bondage of the law itself, but also just from the bondage of the sin of creation. The bondage that comes with this physical world. And so Paul is using that again. He says, why are you guys returning to the flesh? Why are you guys returning to the desires just of this broken and cursed creation whose slaves you want to be once more? But here's the crazy thing with that phrase. Here's the thing that I don't think that we've maybe realized yet. When he says the elementary principles of the world, he's talking to a group of people that at this point, their problem hasn't been with the world. Their problem hasn't been with false idols or, or with sticks and stones that are put in temples that people are bowing down to. Their problem hasn't been with any of that. Their problem has been a slavery to the Mosaic law itself. Paul is talking to this group of Christians who are being led astray under the Mosaic law, being told that they have to look at the Mosaic law as a way to grow in their salvation. And Paul is equating the Mosaic law with the same kind of false religion, with, with the same kind of idolatry that would happen across the street in a Roman city in a pagan temple. Because remember, when, when people are studying in pagan temples, when people are worshiping, they're not actually worshiping real gods. Paul makes that point clear. He says those things that by nature are not gods. People are going into the temple of Artemis, and, and they're going into the temple of Zeus, and they say that they're worshiping these gods, but really they're just worshiping nature. They're worshiping stone. They're, they're, they're worshiping marble. They're, they're, they're worshiping wood. They're, they're actually just worshiping nature itself. But Paul says here to these Christians who are now being told that they have to follow Judaism, he says that you are falling into the same trap, that when you try to follow the Mosaic law, you are returning to this thing that is no better than your neighbor across the street who worships a false idol in a temple made out of stone. That's a bold claim, guys. That's a very, very bold claim for Paul to equate those two things. To say that Judaism, the Mosaic law, for you to try to follow that now as a Christian is no better than someone who just tries to worship a fake, uh, a fake statue. Just, just, just a temple made, made out of wood and, and made out of sticks. It's an incredible thing that he's doing here. It's an amazing point that he's trying to make. So let's read on. He says, whose slaves you want to be most more. Let's make one thing clear before we move on here. 
What Paul isn't saying is he's not saying that the law is just as bad or as sinful or as pagan as false religions. Let's not make that mistake. Even though he's equating the two, even though he's telling these people that those of you who are trying to become righteous by the law are no better than people who follow the elementary principles of the world by following pagan gods, he's not saying that the Mosaic law or that the Old Testament is now on the same plane or as the same level as false religions. If that was true, then everything that we covered in chapter 3 over these past few months would have been a waste of time. Because remember, the law is good. The law reflects God's holiness. But the problem is not the law. The problem is not the law itself. The problem is when people try to return to the law, when they try to return to the Mosaic Code in order to make themselves righteous. That's the problem. And that's the problem that Paul is trying to deal with with this group of Christians. He says, when you try to make yourself a better Christian by becoming a better Jew, by following God's law better, you are no better than any other pagan who is a slave to the principles of the world. Because remember, what did Paul say about the law? Anyone who is under the law is under a curse. They're under a curse. And in the same way, for we as Christians, when we get saved by grace, but then we try to earn our salvation or we try to grow in our salvation, not by grace, but by just trying to do a good, enough good works to make us feel like we're a better Christian than we were yesterday, we're falling into the same problem of legalism that is happening here. And we are no better than any other false religion that believes in a works-based salvation. So if we began in a grace-based salvation, we need to continue in a grace-based salvation. But here's the thing, guys, and we've talked about this. You guys have seen that little triangle that I put on the screen. I don't think we have it this week, but you guys remember that triangle. Really, the problem for most of us as Christians, myself included, we don't really need a legalism sermon. I hope we understand that. I don't think that most of us have an issue of us trying too hard to obey in order to earn God's favor. I don't think that's the problem. Really, the problem is not legalism, but it's really apathy for our context today. Amen. Our context is we say, hey, we've been saved by grace, and now that I'm saved by grace, I get to go and live however I want and live a pretty comfortable life. It's like we treat salvation like, like someone paying off our credit card, where someone who's always using their credit card, always racking up credit card debt, if someone pays off their credit card, guess what's going to happen? They're not going to think, oh, great, now I won't have credit card debt anymore. Now they're thinking, great, now I have a lot more room on my credit card to keep swiping my card without feeling guilty about it. That's our problem today. It's not that we're turning back to some kind of form of legalism. It's that we're turning back to apathy, where we say, okay, Jesus has died for our sin. Worthy is the lamb. He's, he's worthy, and, and he's paid for everything. Now I can basically just live my life as good as I want it to be, and as long as my kids turn out relatively decent, and, and as long as people generally like me at church, I'm going to be okay. That's our problem. And we also, I want to let you guys know that when we do that, we also are no better than our pagan friends who also say, you know what, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to basically try to be a good person, and hopefully it all works out in the end. We are no better when we live that kind of lifestyle as a Christian. When we say that the gospel, okay, it's paid for our sin. 
Now we can basically just go and live our life how we want. Here's the point that Paul is about to make, because I'm just going to let you know, we actually haven't gotten to the point yet. All right? The big idea, we actually haven't gotten to it. Because remember, the question that we posed at the beginning of the sermon was, how do we avoid returning back to sin? How do we avoid falling back into that slavery? How do we solve that problem? We've talked about what the issue is of apathy. Now you're asking, now you're wondering, okay, great, how do we fix it? How do I avoid that apathy? How do I avoid that legalism? How do we live a truly faithful life that is pleasing the Lord? How do we do it? The answer is in a key word that I think we've overlooked in these verses up to this point. There's one word that has been repeated more than once in these verses, starting in verse 8. Because if we were just thinking about the gospel, we would think that Paul would say, formerly, when Jesus paid for your sins, you were freed from your sins, and why are you now returning to it? We would think that Paul would say something like that. Or we would say, but now, in verse 8, that you have come to be forgiven by God, or now that you have come to be saved by God, why are you going back and doing these things? Does Paul say that? Does Paul use those words? No. Look at the language that Paul uses to describe our Christianity. The word that he uses is not the word of forgiveness, even though forgiveness is true. The word that Paul uses is not the word salvation, even though salvation is true. The word that Paul uses to describe the Christian life is the word no. No. That's how he frames the Christian life. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, and remember, he's talking to Jewish people. He's telling Jewish people, formerly, you didn't know God. And back then, when you didn't know him, you were enslaved by nature to things that are not God. But now look in verse 9. But now, he doesn't say, but now that you have come to be saved, or now that you have come to be forgiven. He says, now that you have come to know God. And not only that, but not just to know God, but what else? To be known by God. Why? How is the word that Paul uses? How can you turn back again to the weak and to the worthless elementary principles of the world when you know your creator? That's our big idea for today, and let's throw it up on the screen. That the reason why we return to our sin is because we do not have a perspective of our Christianity as one being a loving relationship where we desire and are affectionate for God before all other things. Knowing God, loving God, produces a hatred for sin. The problem isn't, remember, it's not cutting down jungles, remember? It's, weeding, uh, it's irrigating deserts. The problem isn't that we need to cut down on our sin. The problem is that we need to up and amplify our love for the Lord and recognize that our Christianity is more than just God paying our credit card bill, but that it's God choosing to adopt us. It's God choosing to indwell us by his spirit and to make us heirs. That's why we spent two weeks talking about those two very concepts. 
because that's the backbone. That's the foundation of what it means to know God, that God indwells you, that God has adopted you as a son. You are more than just a criminal before God is judged that God has forgiven. You are a criminal that God has adopted and who has invited you to his table and who has made you a part of his family and who wants to know you and who wants you to know him. When we have a loving relationship with the Lord that knows him, it makes us recognize our sin in the way that Paul describes it, as weak and as worthless. When we simply understand our Christianity as a debt paid, which don't get me wrong, Christianity is a debt paid. But when we only look at it like that, we only put ourselves in a perspective that says, great, our debt has been paid in order for me to continue the habits that got me into that debt. And that's why we struggle so much with apathy. That's why we struggle to live the Christian life because we're always thinking of it in terms of what am I doing? What is God forgiving? Where the terms that Paul is putting is that God has died in order that he may know you. Think again of that analogy of the slave in the market who has been forgiven of his debts, but then the emperor goes down to the slave market and adopts him. Think about how much easier it would have been for that slave, for the emperor to go down and say, okay, I'm going to free you. I'm going to buy back your freedom. Uh, I'm going to pay off all your debts. You're free to go. Most of those slaves in the Roman Empire, many of them, they were slaves because of their debts. That was the number one, or one of, one of the leading, at least, causes of slavery in the Roman Empire. Debt. For someone to just come and pay the debt and free them and say, off you go, it's inevitable. It's a matter of time before that person just ends up in the same situation that they were before because there's nothing changing in the actual heart of that person. Think about the power of how much that life would be changed for the emperor to say, not only am I forgiving your debt, but you're now going to become a part of my family. You're going to live with me. You're going to know me. We're going to have a relationship where I'm going to teach you how to be like me in an intimate way, just like parents do with their children. That's what produces change. Loving God produces a hatred for sin. And in the same way, Paul here, as he's talking about returning back to a slavery to the elementary principles of the world, he's not talking about Jews who are struggling with worshiping pagan gods. He's talking about Jews who are struggling with the Mosaic law. We see that in the next uh, verse. You, you see that in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. That's referring to the festivals and the Sabbaths and, and the holy days of, of Jewish religion. And look at how Paul ends in verse 11. This is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. This is the kind of verse that you never want to have a parent say to you. You never want to have a teacher or a coach say this to you. I'm never going to say this to you guys, truly. All right, truly. I, and I don't mean that as a joke. I know it's kind of funny, but I will never, ever feel this way about you guys, truly. Where he says in verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's a scary verse, guys, isn't it? It's a scary verse to think that a man who literally was dragged out of cities, who had to run for his life in order to just show these people the beauty of knowing God, showing these people, these Jews and these Gentiles, the beauty of knowing Christ, for them to just return to the same slavery, 
to the same sin that they were a part of before and to Paul to say, did I waste my time? Was this all a waste? Was this real? That's a tragic, tragic thing. And I think we all, myself included, we have to put ourselves in that. Do we behave in such a way that if Paul was here, if Paul had influenced our life, or anyone else had influenced our life, would they look at you and say, it was all a waste? Think of your spiritual mentors. Think of the person who led you to the Lord. Think of your parents or your grandparents who led you to the Lord, who taught you about God's word. If they could see your behavior, not just your public behavior, but if they could see your private behavior, would they say, is this all a waste? Were the things that I taught them done in vain? That's convicting, isn't it? That's very, very convicting. Which is why we as believers, we need to make sure that as we are walking in our Christian faith, that it is not just a Christian faith that says, I need to try to keep my spiritual credit card bill as low as I possibly can, or that I need to appear to be relatively good in front of my church friends and family as best as I possibly can, but a type of Christianity that says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being made like him in his death. That's Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, one of my favorite verses. The problem is not just that we need to avoid sin. The problem is that we need to live a Christian life that knows God and that loves God and that recognizes when we sin, every time we sin, we are throwing the handcuffs back onto our wrists. We are throwing the shackles back on and we are telling the Lord who loves us and who died for us and who knows us. We are saying that we think that we can have a better relationship with our sin than we can with him. So we must understand our Christianity, whether we're trying to combat legalism in our life or as we're trying to combat apathy in our life. We need to recognize that loving God produces a hatred for sin. You guys may be wondering about the illustration at the beginning of our message this morning, about these three people that we mentioned, that this man from Virginia, whose name we don't know, this woman named Percy Ann Martin, this other man named Kimba, why did they all return to slavery? You know what? We know why. I didn't give you the reason at the beginning, but I'm going to give you the reason now. It's the number one reason why all African-American slaves return to their masters because their family members were still slaves. It wasn't because they were too stupid to live on the outside. It wasn't because that they were lazy and they were more comfortable living in this life of slavery. It was because their wife was still a slave. And this person said, a life of freedom is not worth me being with my spouse. It's not worth me not being with the person that I love. Every single person in here, and the number one reason given by African Americans who voluntarily returned to their slavery was to return to their family. Don't tell me that knowing God is not a good enough reason to change your life. Because when you love someone, that impacts the way you live. Even if it means walking back to the man who whipped you and put you in handcuffs and said, I will gladly take it to be with my people. In the same way, we as Christians, we are called to be slaves to God, 
to not return to the slavery of sin, but to calibrate our life because of the joy of being with him and knowing him. That's what God calls us to. And the question that each and every one of you is going to have to ask yourself, because this is really the question. The question's not, are you going to stop sinning? Because you're not. I'm going to continue sinning. You're going to continue sinning. The question's not even, are you going to feel more guilty about your sin? I hope that's not the takeaway. The question is for you today. Do you have a perspective of God that God is worth knowing to such a degree that you are going to prioritize your life around knowing God? Is God worth that to you? That's the deep, dark secret question that you're going to have to ask yourself. Is God actually worth knowing? And if you're wondering what your answer to that question is, look at your behavior over this past week. And your behavior will give you an answer. And if you're sitting in this room and you're saying, you know what, I want that to be the case, but my emotions, my, I'm struggling, I, I don't know how to feel that affection for the Lord, pray for it. Pray for it. Ask for it. Remember, God has given us his spirit, and God is a good father who gives good things to his children, including a love for him. Let's evaluate whether or not this God that we come and sing to, and this God that we claim to all be saved by, to see whether or not he is actually a God worth knowing in such a way that we will change our life accordingly in order to know him better. Pray with me.